Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in African American Studies. I am your host, Adam McNeil. Today, I am discussing a book actually outside of the usual purview of my interviews. And we are going to take a trip to Jamaica. And I am excited, especially on this snowy Friday, to discuss a phenomenal book published by our friends at Yale University Press entitled A Dark Inheritance, Blood, Race, and Sex in Colonial Jamaica. And the author of that phenomenal text is Dr. Brooke Ann Newman, who is an associate professor of history and the associate director of the Humanities Research Center at Virginia Commonwealth University. And she is also the co-editor of Native Diasporas, Indigenous Identities and Settler Colonialism in the Americas. So welcome to New Books in African American Studies, Dr. Brooke Newman. Thanks very much for having me. Awesome. And so once again, thank you so much for taking the time out to discuss your amazing book with me. And before we get any further, got to give a shout out to a mutual friend of ours who helped to orchestrate this shebang. And that person is nothing other than the phenomenal Dr. Carrie Lee Merritt, who I had on a couple months ago to discuss her phenomenal book co-edited with uh, Dr. Dr. Heald as well. And so got to give her a shout out before we get too far. Yes, thank you. Most definitely, most definitely. And so um, to, to begin, can you talk to us about um, how, why this particular topic and, and how you really came to it as, as one, you know, that you wanted to create a book project for? Yes, great. Yeah, that's a perfect question, I think, to start with. Um, we always want to know why people came to their topics. For me, this book grew out of a number of different interests that overlapped. So an interest in British history, Atlantic history, the history of slavery, and also race, gender, and sexuality. So sort of a perfect soup of different interests. And what I wanted to do was better understand the development of Jamaica, which is one of the most brutal and also wealthiest slave societies in the British Atlantic Empire in the 18th century. And I was also really interested in studying the emergence of racial classifications in Jamaica. And initially, I focused my attention on the development of slave law. And I had written a dissertation looking at slave laws and their development in the British Caribbean um, in the 17th century, so much earlier time period. But I was sort of dissatisfied by the dissertation. I wanted to do more. And I also felt as though because I had focused on Barbados, Jamaica, and the Leeward Islands, I hadn't really spent enough time really immersing myself in the history of one colony. And so because I'm drawn to the 18th century um, and slavery and also understandings of race, I naturally picked Jamaica because Jamaica is so incredibly important to the Atlantic Empire by the 1730s and 1740s. It really emerges as the most valuable colony in the British Atlantic Empire in this period. 
But I was also drawn to the fact that this is an island that had a substantial population of free people who were descended from enslaved ancestors and who were of mixed ancestry. And so they are such a crucial demographic category in the 18th century. And by the 19th century, the early 19th century, they actually become the majority of the free population in Jamaica. So there's a sort of variety of different reasons why I decided to focus on Jamaica. And Jamaica also had this, I think, fairly well-known reputation because of the existence of what were known as privilege petitions and, and private acts. So these privilege petitions were presented by the descendants of the enslaved and also of mostly elite white men who are you know, members of the assembly who have a lot of money, and they present these petitions essentially asking for white status and white privileges under the law. And some of them, their requests are granted um, in the form of private acts passed by the assembly. And so Jamaica had acquired this reputation. And, you know, Winthrop Jordan, I think, um, helped to enhance this by, by essentially um, arguing that Jamaica was this really unusual, cosmopolitan, kind of, you know, a liberal place in terms of race. And I essentially thought, you know, that can't be true. I just don't see how the most brutal and repressive slave colony in the British Atlantic Empire could be this sort of relaxed liberal place that Winthrop Jordan tries to argue. Um, and what I discovered in my research was that, you know, the existence of these privileged petitions and these private acts was absolutely crucial to the functioning of the colony. And it gave the assembly and those with power, discretionary power to decide who was white, who deserved to have the privileges of whiteness, um, and essentially what whiteness was. Um, and that's something that I think is so important to talk about um, in terms of thinking about race, that whiteness is also a racial category and whiteness emerges in tandem with um, ideas about mixed race identity and African identity in the 18th century. All exceptional. And, and thank you for that great historical grounding too, um, because the 18th century um, is, is such an interesting time um, because you have so much going on. You have, you know, towards the end, obviously you have the, um, the Haitian revolution, which changes um, the economic uh, 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 futures of so many di other islands, not even on, um, on on the actual island um, where the revolution was occurring. And so like, it's just so interesting seeing in your text how, you know, as your, as your, the first part of your title says, a dark inheritance, right? So, so as you assume a particular racial identity, you know, or you inherit it rather, you know, as you're coming into the world, what you are classified in is an open debate. And I think that that is so rich and, and it's really drawn out greatly uh, by your text. And so um, can you talk to us about um, how really Jamaica, as far as, you know, uh, as far as the notion of blood, right? Because I, I was in a class with with a, a, a Zara here at the University of Delaware, and I uh, wrote a paper on on really black blood sacrifice and how black blood really was foundational to the founding of the United States um, and, and economic futures. And it's interesting seeing many different types of, 
of webs flowing through that through through your work as well, which is very interesting. So in terms of, I just wanted to just for a second, go back to the title. Um, yeah. yeah, so the title, A Dark Inheritance, for me, that title has two meanings. Uh, one, it is the inheritance of slave status. And, and so that, I think, takes us back to the, the blood question, um, which I'll return to in a minute. But also for me, it's, the, it's this dark inheritance of the legacies of slavery. And that is really what this speaks to for me, the, f- the fact that this is something, even though this is happening in Jamaica, and for many people, Jamaica is far removed from, I mean, in America, right, from our everyday experience, the way we think about race, um, even when you think about slavery, people don't tend to automatically think about Jamaica unless they're, you know, colonial historians or 18th century historians. Um, and so for me, when I was working on this project, I initially went into it not thinking at all about blood. Blood was not really on my radar when I started this project. I was thinking a lot more about, I mean, of course, I was thinking about slave status um, but it was when I dis- when I was studying the development of slave laws, and I realized that essentially by the end of the 17th century in Jamaica, slave laws were more or less set for a number of years after the 1696 slave code. But in the 18th century, there's all of these laws about people who are free, uh, trying to categorize them, uh, classify them and attach legal disabilities to these groups. And so these groups included people who were descended from enslaved ancestors, people who we would consider you know, free blacks who had been um, manumented, people who were of Indian descent. And I say Indian with kind of you know, quotes in the sense that this was a really generic catch-all category. Um, in terms of where these different people were from, of of indigenous ancestry, probably from places like New England um, and also South America and other islands, um, and as well as members of the Jewish community. And so they were lumped together in some of these early laws. And that really fascinated me because generally speaking, most of the scholarship up to the point when I started working on this book focused on, you know, one of these groups sort of specifically. So there were, you know, books about the planter elite. Um, There were books about the Jewish community um, in different islands. There were books about free people, you know, really important scholarship, and also, of course, about the enslaved. But I was wondering, really, you know, what is it that connects these people together in the minds of these legislators in the 18th century? And it seemed to me fairly clear early on that they were defining them as, you know, not eligible for the rights, the full rights of British subjects, of free British subjects, based on their lineage. So the fact that they were not Christian, first of all, uh, and of course, even if they are Christian, right, that is not really part of this. It's not the same issue as, it's really more about how they're identifying them. Um, and lumping them together. It's not about whether or not they're Christian in their daily lives now, uh, but that they are descended from ancestors who are either classified as heathen or infidels or non-Christian in the case of um, members of the Jewish community. And that really fascinated me that these groups were being lumped together um, and that they were using 
ancestry to do this and and also to get around this issue of complexion you know i think complexion and you know skin color is really how many of us are used to thinking about race uh, particularly given you know the the 19th century and the biological arguments about race that developed later on but in this earlier period you know they're really thinking about race more in terms of how can we use race to attach dis- legal disabilities to particular people and prevent them from being equal with us under the law. Uh, because if you are equal, then you are able to attain property. Um, and then eventually you will have enough property that you can actually play a role in the government. Um, you can vote, you can run for election. Um, and these are the sorts of things that the assembly wanted to prevent. And so blood is something I think that they kind of come to over time, and they're also heavily influenced by um, the Spanish and by Iberian concepts of race. And by the 1730s, which is a really pivotal moment, and I talk about this um, in my book, there's essentially a moment where they actually have to ask themselves, you know, when is somebody white? Can somebody become white over time through mixture? And in Jamaica, What they end up determining in 1733 in a voting act is that if you are three generations removed from an African ancestor, then, you know, that is sufficient to be deemed sort of legally white. Um, But at the same time that they do this, they are so they're trying to define mulatto status. But they're also implicitly defining whiteness, and they're basically saying that whiteness is something that can be attained. And I think this is what leads to um, interpretations like Winthrop Jordan's that this is a kind of flexible, malleable understanding of race. Um, you know that they're allowing for people to become, in theory, white over time. Uh, mm-hmm. But what I but what I talk about in my book is that this is you know incredibly rare, incredibly rare for this to actually happen. I mean, if you look at the entire 18th century, there's like one or two people who are actually legally white through this process. Where you know, and of course, they can only become legally white if it's. Um, if they're descended from women of African ancestry and gradually whitened through mixture with white men over time. And it has to be consistent, you know, over the generations. Uh, And so this is something I think that uh, the important thing to keep in mind here is that the idea of this is to create a system that they can control. um, That's also flexible enough to where they can make exceptions if they feel like that's necessary or needed to their own benefit. It's not to make the society more inclusive, um, not at all. And I also think about when we're, we're talking about this particular subject um, of how one can become white, you know, it makes me think about present day discussions of even blackface, um, especially when you talk about the print culture piece of your text. Right. Um, but but going back to uh, women and specifically uh, actually flip it in this way, white women, um, I noticed an interesting part of your book where you talked about, um, you know, how Jamaica's relative lack of white women, you know, affected how mixed race functioned on the island. Can you speak on that point? Right. So I think the fact that there's not that many white women in Jamaica, um, there's not very many what we would see as stable 
families of British descent, of people who are free living there. Who and there's and actually many of the white men living in Jamaica are bachelors, um, and so this gives rise to a culture of permissive sexual exploitation um, and, and extensive sexual relationships that are illicit. And I would argue coercive in many cases, in most cases, between white men and enslaved and free women of African descent. And over time, you know, sexuality like race and like racial classifications becomes a tool of control and repression. Uh, but it's also a means of autonomy for some. So they're able, there are women who are enslaved that I talk about or who are free, who are able to use these relationships, you know, to their advantage. But I also think it's, you know, I think it's really important to emphasize that generally these were, this was, this was a culture of sexual violence and exploitation. And I think that, that to underemphasize that really does a disservice to the people that we're talking about here. There's not a lot of married stable families. And so it becomes really common for many men to arrive in, you know, from wherever to come to Jamaica and within a short period of time cohabitate with a woman that they would have called, you know, their housekeeper. And I talk about this specifically um, in chapter four of my book by looking at two particular families, um, the Johnsons and the Taylors, and how, you know, these men arrive and within short periods of time, they end up essentially taking an enslaved woman into their house. Um, and this enslaved woman stands in as a nurse, um, as a sort of servant, and as a sexual partner, and essentially takes care of these men. And they really um, take this as a kind of custom of the country. This is just sort of what you do in Jamaica, and it's fairly common. And even if they have a number of children who are um, illegitimate, mixed race children with these women, occasionally, of course, sometimes they will free them. Uh, sometimes they will leave them real or personal property. Sometimes they will, in extraordinary cases, even send them to Britain to be educated. But this is such a small percentage. I mean, a very small percentage of the population that this is, that this is happening to, that I think it's easy to look at some of these extraordinary cases and these exceptional moments and think that, wow, look at these men, they're sending these, you know, illegitimate children off to Britain. You know, this is such, such an amazing instance of, you know, white male generosity, but I don't see it that way at all. I see this very much as about power. You know, they have the power to take these women into their households, to treat them however they want, and to more or less discard them when the relationship has served its purpose. Uh, and that's what I talk about in the book, that, that, you know, the people in the 19th century who are of African and mixed descent, who are looking back on this whole process and talking about um, the development of Jamaica, they're really angry that their ancestors, their female ancestors were treated this way, you know, essentially as concubines and not afforded any respect and never married and never given, you know, positions of respectability and legitimacy. Um, and they argue that, you know, this goes all the way back to this, the very earliest decades of slavery and to this, you know, 
early initial idea about slave status being inherited through the mother, um, you know, that Jennifer Morgan has written about at length. And I think this is a really important point that when you have a society that allows for ubiquitous sexual relationships, um, it creates inequality that is inheritable and that lasts for multiple generations and is extremely difficult to get around. And I think about the point that you made about, um, you know, the the sexual, it almost sounds like sexual tourism. Um, and, and I'm thinking about how that knowledge is disseminated. Um, and so can you talk about kind of how print culture, can you speak to how print culture is a driving force in, in, showing that, you know, in, in, in illustrating this uh, sexual uh, tourist economy, as, as I guess you can even determine it to be, um, shown through the, the two um, family cases that you, you just mentioned? So in the 18th century, so prior to the Seven Years' War, so prior to these um, 1760s or so, there are a number of, you know, different books about the Caribbean. Um, and the colonies that are being published. And they talk a little bit about uh, sexual relationships and such, but not really that much. You know, there's a lot of books like, you know, about the economic development of the islands and things like that. But it's really during the second half of the 18th century that there is a sort of explosion of print culture. And that's one of the reasons why um, in my book, the first half of the book is really focused on the island and the local context and the development of these laws um, and on the everyday lived experience on the island. And then the second half of the book I sort of move out to take a broader lens and return to Britain because that is when there is all of this print culture um, in in the form of things like plays and novels, colonial histories, newspaper accounts, um, satirical prints. There's a number of different um, types of print and visual imagery circulating around in Britain. And people are hearing about what's happening in um, the colonies. But I don't think it's really until after the American Revolution and in the context of the abolition movement that it starts to take on a new meaning. Because some of the earlier um, plays and things from the 1760s and 1770s, you know, they talk a little bit about how, you know, or they allude to the sexual promiscuity um, and some of the brutality uh, in the islands, but it, it's almost, you know, lighthearted. It's almost like a joke. And I think that's probably the most disturbing part of all of this, that when you look back at the 18th century, the, the kind of jokes that they made were very graphic and to us, you know, were like repulsive. But this is the sort of stuff that they found funny. I mean, they thought sexual exploitation was a laugh, but this is an era when prostitution is really common. And there's a ton of um, people who, who are accessing prostitutions in Covent Garden and places like that. I mean, you know, um, infidelity was was rampant in the 18th century. This is not, you know, the Victorian era at all. This is the Georgian period where, you know, raunchy jokes were the norm. But after the American Revolution and, you know, in the Haitian Revolution, and the French Revolution, there's suddenly all of these concerns in Britain about, you know, what is going to happen 
to the Caribbean and to these islands that are so crucial to us from an economic and a strategic standpoint. Uh, but at the same time, these are not, you know, as Trevor Bernard has argued, these are not white settler societies. These are slave societies where the, the vast majority of the population is enslaved. And there's a growing population of free people of mixed descent, uh, some of whom have come back to Britain or want to come back or are highly educated and want to, to be full members um, in the British Empire and have the same rights as people at home. Um, and that's, I think, when there's a, a shift in the print culture. And I do talk about this in um, chapter five of my book, in particular, looking at the satirical prints and how they they really start to proliferate in the late 18th and 19th century. And there is a focus in those prints on the bodies of enslaved women. And, you know, Sasha Turner has written about this in her book as well, um, Contested Bodies, and Catherine Powell um, and others. But, you know, the bodies of enslaved women become a focal point of all of these concerns about not only the abolition of the slave trade, because of course you need enslaved women to then reproduce the next generation of, of captive laborers, right? But also because enslaved women and eventually their descendants, if they become free, can also reproduce people of mixed descent who, who eventually might possibly want to become part of the British Empire as free and equal subjects um, and may, may even over time become white. And so this, this I think, really changes the conversation um, in, in the 19th century and particularly after the abolition of the slave trade, the British slave trade um, in 1807. You know, then there's so much more of a focus on essentially... Uh, ambivalence about the place of people who have who are descended from slaves. You know, how will they fit in the British Empire? Will we incorporate them ultimately as free subjects? And if we do, will they be equal um, to the white population? And that I think is something that um, you see if you if you look at the print culture and why it's so crucial to look at a wide variety of sources, which is what I tried to do for this book. And, and you did it very well because going to your particular point, one of my favorite chapters of your text was actually enslaved women and British comic culture. And um, I have a, a passage actually ready uh, to, to speak to because it's on page 225. I think it was one of your greatest points um, in the entire text, and it reads, um, but rather than depicting the tr a racially transgressive fantasy explored in images of interracial intimacy uh, set in metropolitan Britain, this print captured one of the most contentious issues of the abolition debate, going back to what you mentioned with the abolition movement, that white male control over and degenerate desire for black female sexuality threatened to imperil the colonial system or the colonial slave system and British identity. I thought that that was like, wow, like that, there, there's just, there's just so much uh, packed into that particular statement. And, and it's why I thought it was one that I, I, I don't always uh, uh, read specifically from a particular passage, but I just thought that the point that you made in that one 
was really interesting because you're saying in that that effectively there were folks in Britain and various places in the empire who were thinking, well, all of this, all of the, the, the sexual violation that you're committing is, is going to hurt the empire because you're creating a set of folks who are, you know, who, whose identities and such can, can change and, and maybe even break down and tear down the, the, the slave system. Absolutely. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great point. I appreciate that you read that, that quote. Um, I do think too, you know, sexuality is something that for a long time in slavery studies was pushed to the side in favor of economic focus, you know, for a number of decades. And it's really only been recently that we are starting to really address this, the crucial significance of gender and sexuality to slavery studies um, and to the operation of slave societies and to power dynamics. And I think that that's why, you know, in terms of methodology, I decided to make this book a blend of social, legal, and cultural history because I think they're so connected. And if you don't consider how, you know, the law and and custom and social practice on the ground shape culture, you're really missing an opportunity to see how all of this is, um, you know, together in a large web and influencing each other. Uh, And sexual practices in Jamaica and places like that um, are, on the one hand, viewed as sort of other and, oh, we can kind of laugh about this. And this is happening in this, you know, far flung colonial space. But over time, that space starts to become more um, real in people's minds, you know, as the 18th century progresses and as and actually as more people return from the colonies and the, the West Indian lobby plays a huge role in the 18th century in helping to delay the abolition of the slave trade. But also there's a number of people living in London and other parts of Britain who are from initially from the Caribbean and they come back and they have a ton of money. Many of them, they have connections um, and they bring back sometimes mistresses or illegitimate children with them. And this is something that, you know, they joke around about, First, but then over time, there's some concern about, well, you know, are these people who are illegitimate going to infiltrate Britain? And so it's not just about a question of, you know, what's happening out in some far flung peripheral colonial space. It's actually about our identity at home as well. Uh, And that's something I think that is easy to forget if you just focus on the colonial context. And you don't look at movement between spaces because, you know, this in this period, people were moving everywhere. You know, they were traveling, um, they were relocating, they had they wrote, you know, extensive letters back and forth. You know, it's, it's actually amazing to think how much they got around considering how long it took. Absolutely. No. And, and that's that's something that I think about as well, especially on my uh, on my recent flight to uh, to Britain from uh, from uh, from New Jersey, uh, where right. I gave a talk at um, at uh, at the uh, at uh, the University of Oxford, actually uh, through oh, got a shout out, got a can't forget to shout out my Oxford uh, uh, Early American Republic seminar folks. Shout out to Grace and Stephen. 
um, and everyone else who came out. And um, and and actually, on that point, um, I'm always interested in how historians and and, and scholars generally uh, conduct research for your pro- for their projects. So, um, since we're kind of on this methodological, you know, kind of research phase, um, can you speak to where where your research took you um, for 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 various archives, whether digital or analog? Sure. So all. I would say maybe not all, but the vast majority of my research was, you know, sitting in an archive, um, traveling around. I did a lot of my research in the UK because, you know, of course, many of the colonial records are in um, the National Archives in Kew. So that was, of course, a crucial chunk of this. But I also found that a lot of the collections related to um, the islands are in the U.S. too. So they're just sort of scattered all over the place. Hmm, And so I, yeah, um, I mean, and of course, I went to Jamaica. In Jamaica, I found some um, amazing tax records that enabled me to, I actually ended up doing a kind of sample of them because it's, so if you go to Jamaica to do research, you can't really take photos. Um, I think they charge like $5 per image or something. And I, and so when I went, I really felt pressed for time. And so I kind of did samples of, um, you know, taxes and I was looking at Kingston in particular, and I was trying to map um, where members of the free community were you know, in the city over time. And I was able to, to track some people. And in one of my chapters, I talk about a particular woman who becomes legally white over time. And you can actually track her in the tax records because her, her racial status changes. And I didn't expect to get there to, you know, to the archives in Jamaica and have them bring me these massive, you know, really old crumbling tax records and see that next to people's names, you know, they actually wrote stuff like um, FM, you know, free mulatto, FQ, free quadroon, that sort of thing. And, and I just, you know, nobody had really talked that, about that. So that I thought that was really amazing discovery to find in the archives. Um, and then, of course, I worked on uh, colonial laws, um, private petitions. Those are both printed and there's copies of them. The original copies are typically in um, the National Archives. The journals of the Jamaica Assembly, the entire collection. So that's printed was in um the John Carter Brown Library at Brown University. And I had a fellowship there for a year, which was a really amazing and kind of a formative experience, you know, as a postdoctoral person that helped me shape this project. And it was actually during that year as a postdoc that I decided to write about Jamaica specifically. Um, and so that was, I think it's really important for people to have time you know, after you finish your dissertation to sit back and decide, um, am I going to revise this, you know, as is, or am I going to change directions or what? But I think it's the opportunities created by fellowships and archival institutions. And, you know, as you would say, shout out to all of these archives that are willing to give people the time to research. It's just fundamental to developing your project, whether it's a dissertation or an article or a first book or a subsequent book, you know, it's so crucial to have access to those records. Uh, And the other thing that was really important for me were things like letters and diaries. Um, And I I used the letters and 
primarily the letters. I had some diary entries for um, a couple of people, but mostly I had, you know, a ton of letters from planters um, and slaveholders from um, agents. So like the, the Jamaica agent in London, Stephen Fuller, his records are at Duke University. So I really kind of had to go to a lot of different places to find the collections that I was looking for. Um, I had the records of, of slave traders, physicians, um, tons of different types of, of people. And it enabled me to do, I think, a kind of a cross section of society and think about, you know, how, what was life like for, let's say, um, Simon Taylor, who was the richest and, you know, one of the most powerful and influential men um, in the 18th century, not just in Jamaica, but in the entire British Empire. I mean, he just had an enormous amount of wealth. You know, what was life like for him? versus someone like Alexander Johnston, who came from Aberdeen, Scotland, to Jamaica to make his fortune and started with nothing. Um, and, and over time kind of built his fortune and was really, really committed to staying in Jamaica and building a fortune and um, to, and also surviving. Because, of course, the, the mortality rate was extremely high. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Um, but then I, I, the last thing I wanted to say, though, about just about sources was that um, well, focusing on satirical prints that what's crazy about that is so so many of them are online um, in places like are online through the British Museum or other um, deposit repositories I also found some at Yale sometimes you'll find an image so you'll find reference to an image but the image itself has not actually been digitized and it's so frustrating and so you have to like actually go to the archive or contact someone or pay like exorbitant amounts of money to get a hold of these images but that research on the satirical prints and the the comic culture stuff that I worked on that actually took years. That chapter took me uh, multiple years to write because culture, I think, is something that you sometimes you think, oh, I've got it. I figured out what it's all about. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, you'll go down a rabbit hole and you'll find something and you're like, no, wait a minute. And, and then you change your mind and then you change your mind and you find more stuff. And so sometimes I think cultural history gets a bad rap because people think, oh, cultural history, you're just, you know, sitting at home accessing some database or, you know, looking at print culture, it's not that important. Um, But actually it's extremely time consuming to really sift through culture and also to put ourselves in, in their mindset, not always a fun thing to do, you know, when you're thinking about slave traders and slaveholders and people in the 18th century. But I think it's crucial because if we don't uh, do that, then we don't really get the joke. And I kept thinking about that while I was writing that chapter that, you know, what is the joke here and what am I missing? And, and I had to go back and rethink it and do a lot of reading of, of novels and plays. And I also spent a ton of time looking at pornography, which is not in this book. I mean, I don't have that in there, but I, I had to, I was trying to understand where they were coming from. Mm-hmm. And and of course, many of the satirical prints um, are focused on women's bodies and there's a lot about prostitutes and a lot of sort of sort of socially lampooning people because of the type of clientele who purchase satirical prints and humorous prints in this era. And so the images of enslaved women, which, you know, when we initially see them, they seem really shocking. They're not that shocking in comparison to other images from the period. 
I mean, they're pretty, those images are extremely graphic. No, and actually you, you, you mentioned the pornographic nature of it. And actually one of my final questions was actually going to be on whether or not you even, whether or not some of the prints that you use for this particular text would be considered pornographic and, and also, you know, thinking about the kind of people who would consume that. Right. Um, and so you, I guess you are reading my mind, interestingly enough, on that case, when it came to that area of your, of your text. Um, and then also thinking about this in the context of present debates that are going on in your own state, right? Thinking about, you know, blackface and, and assuming particular identities and such. And, and obviously, you know, it's not only happening in Virginia. It's only the, the latest, uh, 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 times of it. Um, but, 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 but yeah, you know, I, I was really thinking about that as I'm reading your text and thinking about how blood purity and, and and also thinking about DNA tests, right? You know, I, I remember my mother, I bought an ancestor DNA test for her for Christmas for, for a few years ago. And she was, oh my gosh, she was so, so happy to get her results. But then a part of me as a historian, I'm kind of like, oh man, I like, I, I know that it's important, you know, in some ways, but I can also see like kind of how this is this is another form of kind of you know surveillance and 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 uh, and, and such, especially when it comes to how race works, um, especially right. for 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 our present times that have come from uh, other times as well. Right, and I think that I yeah I do find it troubling in the sense that blood is still being used to mm-hmm. think about race and to claim membership in a particular racial group. Or, I mean, when you think about Elizabeth Warren, right, cl- right. you know, claiming native identity when that's actually not how native people um, decide who is a member of their community, you know, and they see themselves as sovereign nations and they are the ones who decide who belongs and who doesn't. You can't just go spit in a test and then say, well, guess what? I'm Cherokee. And so it really is, a, it's such a complicated issue, as you said. And, and, you know, this stuff, this blood stuff, I think that, you know, the 18th century is a, is a fascinating time period because so much is being um, discussed and debated and, um, you know, considered in the 18th century. And they're using basically fictive constructs about blood to decide who belongs in what category. And I think that people in the 18th century were aware to some extent of the fictitious nature of this. I mean, that, that to me is what was so intriguing about um, studying the Jamaica Assembly, that in their notes, they're actually talking about, you know, well, what, what does it mean to be a mulatto? Um, you know, and taking notes on this and discussing it. Well, does it mean this? You know, what does it say about your blood? Um, how far does the corruption of blood extend? That was that quote actually is what really changed the direction of my book when I found that quote when they were discussing corruption of blood. Because for a long time, I had heard, you know, scholars had talked about how, you know, blood is really important in the Spanish colonies um, and, in, and even in the French colonies, but not so much among the British, because the British have a, just a different understanding of this. And they're not, they don't really allow for mixture 
and legal whitening in the same way. And yet here are these men sitting around in Jamaica talking about whitening as a process um, because it benefited them, because they lived in a society that they were, um, you know, of course, they had all the power, but at the same time, demographically, they were heavily outnumbered and under threat. And this is occurring, you know, when they're having these conversations about blood and identity in the midst of a war with the Maroons. And so they are threatened in from, you know, internally. Uh, and they're also afraid for much of the 18th century of outside attacks by the French or Spanish or whoever. And so a lot of their discussions about blood and race happen in this particular moment where they're talking about, okay, if we have descendants who are, you know, our own children, for example, who are illegitimate and mixed descent, but at the same time, they're willing to um, be good subjects and be useful and, and essentially help prop up the white planter elite um, to help defend us from the Maroons and the enslaved, uh, then maybe we should allow them some rights, not all the rights that we have, but some, because then we will get them on our side. And this is something they really play around with um, and openly discuss. And I remember reading an article a long time ago, and I'm, for, I'm sorry, I can't remember the name of it, but somebody was basically saying, you know, we, we talk too much about how race is formed and how and racial constructs when really mm-hmm. race is more organic than that and whatever. And I, and I was like, no, I don't agree with that at all, honestly. I mean, people did create race. They talked about it openly. Mm-hmm. You know, they sat down and they came up with things like, you know, X number of generations removed. It was arbitrary in many cases. And they talked about it. Um, over time, I think the fact that race was something that is in the law and that is elastic in the sense that the laws change. So like in Jamaica, after Tacky's revolt in 1760, which is the most violent revolt to have occurred in the Caribbean before the Haitian Revolution, um, they're absolutely terrified of the possibility of the descendants of enslaved people ending up with power and land in Jamaica. Um, And so they passed this act that prevents the descendants of slaves from buying, inheriting, or bequeathing property in excess of um, what would have been the equivalent of 1,200 pounds sterling or 2,000 Jamaican currency. And the goal of this was to keep free people confined, you know, in the intermediate class that they couldn't become, you know, have landed property and end up, you know, a member of of the assembly and all that kind of stuff. And so in order to prevent them from having power, they pass these acts. And in the midst of that act, they also say, now in order to be white legally, you have to be four generations removed from an African ancestor and not just three. And so they are literally making race in the 18th century. And, and I think that's very powerful and something that we, sh- we need to come to grips with, um, particularly, as you were saying, talking about the current situation, um, the legacies of this are with us and we're, you know, we're all implicated. And I think that if we don't take the time to, to kind of revisit the colonial period and see how all of this developed and emerged and how people's lives were transformed um, because of power, and the desire for a very small percentage of people 
to have power and money um, and control over others, uh, we're really missing a major part of our own history um, and its legacies. And the last thing I wanted to say just really briefly was Mm -hmm. that um, just in terms of thinking about you know, I know you're you're going to be working on dissertation, and there might be grad students who listen to this. <laughs> Let's hope of course, so. Of course, yeah. But that you know, I think that it's whenever I try to work on stuff like this, you know, it's it's heavy. It's a heavy topic, of course. Anybody who works on race and slavery, this is not easy stuff. Um, and you're going to have an emotional reaction to this material. But for me, the most profound moment of this whole project was when I found the petitions that I opened the book with from 1825. And those were from a group of free men um, living in Spanish town in Kingston. And they were, they were writing um, to the British government. And they were basically saying that, you know, their denial of rights in Jamaica was unconstitutional. And they were pointing all the way back to the 17th century and the proclamation of King Charles II. And, you know, that proclamation is something that in Jamaica, you know, the white elite for multiple generations had pointed to and said, you know, this is the foundational charter that guarantees our rights and privileges as English subjects, because the proclamation basically is trying to encourage people to go settle um, in Jamaica, which is a conquered colony. And what it says, basically, I don't remember exactly, but it's like, you know, all the children of our natural born subjects to be born in Jamaica shall have the same rights and privileges as the free born subjects of England. And so people in the 19th century, free people who are who many of whom are of mixed ancestry, they point back to that and they say, you know, legally speaking and constitutionally speaking, we have every right to be equal subjects under the law as white people, you know, and, and, and in fact, more so than we've ever been, that's, that's ever been acknowledged. Um, and, you know, so even if you give us our rights, it's not, you haven't done us a favor. This isn't some kind of granting of privileges that we need to be grateful for. This is an inherited right. And I remember when I read that, it just gave me chills, you know, like this really sophisticated constitutional argument that's being made in the 1820s um, by this group of men and, you know, kind of on the eve of emancipation. And, and that's actually part of why they're sending this is that they realize that emancipation is not that far away. Mm-hmm. And so they're saying, you know, why is it that we still don't have any rights, even though the foundational charter of this colony guarantees that the children of these English men should have these rights. And that kind of blew my mind at the time when I found, you know, found these petitions. And it's in this volume of dozens and dozens of petitions from all around the Caribbean of people making similar kinds of arguments about essentially that they're being denied rights on the basis of fictitious ideas about blood um, and belonging and race. And that, you know, they're, they're all British subjects. And that's why the book is really about the the interplay between race and subjecthood and that those two things are deeply connected and people recognize that. And I think petitions are really some of the best way to get at the voices of people who've been silenced because actually they were silenced. Nobody read. I mean, maybe somebody read that those petitions, but they just shoved them away. 
um, you know, in the colonial office and didn't address their concerns. And so that's why I, when I found that petition, I was like, that is how I want this book to begin because I want that voice to take center stage. Um, And they also directly call out Jamaica's um, white elite for exploiting enslaved women. Um, And they're really, really angry about it, about the sexual exploitation of of enslaved women. And that's another reason why I think sexuality um, is so crucial to slavery studies. Exactly. And, you know, you, you know, I had um, doctors, uh, uh, Dinah Remy Berry and Leslie Harris, uh, I guess would have been a month ago, the episode debuted, uh, because they had their recent volume, um, Sexuality and Slavery. And so, you know, that was an exceptional um, text. And, 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 and as I talked to them, they exactly said what you said that, you know, sex, uh, sexuality and slavery uh, or sexuality in, in slavery studies um, is a relatively new, um, new, new. I wouldn't say new area because I feel like there have been people, you know, there have been a lot of uh, Black women historians and, and 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 women scholars who have done that kind of work, but it's really only recent that because obviously you go back to Deborah Gray White, Dr. Deborah Gray White, um, and, and her work at Rutgers, and so it's just fascinating seeing you know, the, this, this, you know, just so much work that's being done, you know, such and Dr. Sasha Turner, your work, and it's an exceptional time to be a graduate student um, as this time is, is going on. And so, um, you know, thank you so much for this, for this chance to talk to you. It's just been, you know, it's 53 minutes gone. And it, I'm telling you, this is, you know, time flies when you're having a phenomenal conversation. Yes, I agree. And I also just wanted to say I have that volume um, right here on my desk. It's a great <laughs> volume. That it is. And, that it yes. is. And also, um, Marisa Fuentes, I think her book is amazing, Dispossessed yes. Lives. Um, it's going to play a really crucial role in the field. And there's such great work. This is, I think, as you say, an amazing time to be working on the history of slavery, African-American history, Afro-Caribbean history, African diaspora. I mean, the scholarship right now is so rich um, and particularly the archival turn towards really thinking at how do we get at the experiences of people who've been silenced and, mm-hmm. and who are maybe not in the archives in the way we want them to be. And I think that's one of the reasons why Jennifer Morgan's work still has such resonance is that she has said not that long ago, you know, we've got to stop complaining about the archive. Instead, we need to start rethinking the way we study the past and the way we think about what questions we ask. Uh, and I think that's a really, really important thing for grad students to consider right now so that you don't replicate the scholarship of the past, but really pave new ways, um, new paths forward and ask new questions about the evidence. 100%. 100%. And so one last question for you before we go away. Um, you know, you spoke about some uh, future work and uh, would you be able to tell us um, you know, maybe some of the work that we're going to be talking to you about in the near future on new books in African-American studies or Caribbean studies? Um, my book or what I'm working on right now? Uh, well, yeah, for, for, for uh, what's your uh, maybe new book or a new article oh, or right. new work right. that, you're, that you're allowed to talk about. I know some people are <laughs> secretive, so. 
No, no. Um, so I am actually working on a new book project now that's focused on um, the British monarchy and slavery. And so what I'm looking at is royal policies and attitudes towards empire, slavery, and the rights of colonial subjects from the reign of Charles II, so 1660 or so with the Restoration, all the way through the reign of Queen Victoria, but not all, but not all the way through because that would be massive, to about mm-hmm. 1860. So two centuries, essentially. Um, and one of the things that I'm doing in that project is, is looking at how the Stuart monarchs essentially build a slave empire um, in the 17th century and create um, or you know, invest the English in the transatlantic slave trade. And then how that, that empire of slavery, the Atlantic system develops in the 18th century and expands. And then by the 19th century is really transformed by anti-slavery. Um, at the same time, though, it's not just this story about humanitarianism and free labor and all that sort of stuff, because this is also the 19th century is the period when more and more um, um, enslaved Africans are captured, you know, on these slave ships, brought back to West Africa, liberated, and then forced to join the Royal Navy and to fight for the British Empire, um, often in the Caribbean. And so much of what happens is a kind of transformation of the British Empire. So it's less about slavery and the slave trade, but still about forced labor of some sort. Um, you know, they're still forcing people to do things on behalf of the empire. And so I'm really looking at that long term transformation. Um, and I'm also focusing on particular members of the family who played a role in these moments of debate. So Prince William, who becomes the future William IV, he's actually someone who offers really crucial perspectives on slavery and slave trading because he was the only member of the royal family to witness slavery firsthand. Um, He traveled while in the Royal Navy to the Caribbean. He allegedly engaged in sexual relationships with enslaved and free women of color. And he later comes back to Britain and gives numerous speeches that are pro-slavery, trying to defend the slave trade. And he also says, you know, slavery is not that bad and all of this stuff. And so he does a lot of damage to the royal family's reputation in the era of, of, you know, anti-slavery and abolition. But then at the same time, there's other members of the family who become prominent abolitionists. So George III's um, son-in-law, the Duke of Gloucester, he ends up becoming the president of the African Institution, which is an anti-slavery society um, formed right after the abolition of the slave trade. And then later, Prince Albert, so Victoria's husband, he presides over the first world's anti-slavery convention in London in 1840. And there's like people weeping. Um, and there's a lot of eyewitness testimony about this and about how everyone thought it was so amazing that the royal family was at this anti-slavery convention and kind of giving it their blessing. And so you have this such a spectrum of opinions in the royal family um, and really an evolution in their perspectives on slavery and the slave trade. Now that is a phenomenal, oh my gosh, I am, I am, I don't know, you know, I, I, oh my God, that is an amazing, amazing topic. And I look forward to when the time comes, reading it, digesting it, inhaling it, 
taking in it at every single way imaginable because, um, you know, it's, it's always interesting how people react to the royal family. Um, yes. I, I, you know, it's always an interesting thing when, you know, whenever we hear about a new, uh, new child or new, uh, a new spouse coming in and, and CNN has the, has their full court press and all the corporate networks have, you know, and, and it, to me is, it's a spectacle and, and, and it's one of those that we forget that, you know, the, the, the Royals are relatively depoliticized, at least in the, in that context now, but that, but, but that ain't, that ain't the, the, that's not the, the majority of their history. It's a very very different history that only in present times has it really changed. Um, Yes. And I think that the, I don't know if you've heard of the Georgian Papers Project, but yes. it's yep, yep. at William & Mary. So I received a fellowship from them, which was amazing. I was able to spend a month in the Royal Archives working on this project. And I and I think that, you know, the Georgian Papers Program and the fact that many of these papers are being digitized, digitized is really helping people to rethink the position of the royal family, um, but also, you know, the role that they've played. There's, there's been many times where I've talked to people about the sla- slavery and the monarchy, and, and a lot of people have absolutely no idea that the monarchy was involved in the slave trade and that they were instrumental in the creation of the transatlantic slave trade and the development of colonial slavery. And so I think it's time for the royal family to um, admit and kind of come to terms with, with what their ancestors did. Absolutely. And, and that kind of commentary and that kind of uh, a, a very evocative statement is exactly why we were, I'm very happy to have spent the last hour in one hour, a minute and now 15 seconds, uh, because <laughs> I have learned so much. And um, I, th- I think that's a good a relative uh, uh, ending point for the first chapter of our interview history. Um, and so, um, thank you so much, Dr. Uh, Newman, whose recent book published by our friends at Yale University Press entitled A Dark Inheritance, Blood, Race, and Sex in Colonial Jamaica. And thank you so much for taking the time out. And, um, you know, once this interview is published, you know, the whole world will finally be able to hear it and be able to then from there, based upon this amazing conversation, of course, go out and buy your book and, uh, and let the world know more about the work that you've been doing. And um, once again, folks, we've had an amazing professor at Virginia Commonwealth University, which is centered as a, one of the great universities in Richmond, Virginia. And so once again, folks, my name is Adam McNeil, your, your host and, and someone who just loves speaking to phenomenal uh, uh, book authors. And today has been another added chapter. Once again, folks, I'm Adam McNeil, your host of New Books in African American Studies. And as I always say, over and over.